Guess what? The internet lied to me again. It's not on Pluto? It's not on Pluto. It's the other stupid surfing documentary. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> Literally you, like, you look it up and it's like, watch now free on Pluto. <laughs> and you click it and it goes to not Stranger Than Fiction 2006. Why would we do that? I hate it. It's the bane of my existence. I'm so sorry. You've just been like plagued. I think I could probably find it on YouTube. Let me let me check right now. I bet it's on Amazon somewhere. Oh yeah, like Amazon or <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could I could buy or rent it, and I know that it's it because it has it in the thumbnail. I could do that on YouTube, but it's three bucks, and I that's three bucks I don't have because I just paid rent and I get paid on Thursday. Walkers and processor podcast. We, the Walkers, tell you what's on our screens. My name is Becca. And I am Josh. Hooray! And Joshua, tell the people what we're doing today. Finally, day of day. We are finally finishing the movie bracket. I'm not going to say the greatest movies bracket because do you know how many movies I have thought of since we started this that should be on this bracket? Mm-hmm. Secret Life of Walter Mitty comes to mind. Porco Rosso comes to mind. Uh, Kubo and the Two Strings comes to mind. That's a good film. Wow. Whew. I don't know. Any others? <laughs> Should we just do like our honorable mentions really quick? <laughs> um, I I will always go to bat for the original Kung Fu Panda. Okay, sure. Yeah, that's a pretty. It's, uh, a, just, it's a good film. Yeah. Like, it's a good no film. There's no denying yeah. that it's for kids, but it's a good film. I just it's it's on one of my comfort food movies, so that's cute. I feel like you feel about Kung Fu Panda the way a lot of people feel about Shrek. That's fair. That's fair. I think it has a better message. And I think it has, you know, it's a little more mature and speaking of, have you gotten a chance to see Puss in Boots The Last Wish yet? No, not yet. And I keep seeing things about it. And you went and saw it and told me that it was good. So, like, I probably should eventually. Just, uh, uh, I don't know. I've been doing other things. It's so good. It's just great. Uh, but I don't want to spoil too much. I don't want to give too much away. <laughs> so I should say, um, I have pr- I'm prepared to come here and discuss these movies with you. I have not thought re- that much about which ones will be moving forward. Um, I have some idea on some of them. I have uh-huh. no idea on others. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, yeah, let's get into it. What uh, did you think of Ford v. Ferrari? I, I'm surprised at how much I liked Ford v. Ferrari, actually. Because, like, like I said, you know, I thought it was just, like, 
yet just another sports movie PM and you and Ethan convinced me that I was not and you were right. Uh, one thing that surprisingly stood out to me is this is going to sound bonkers, but it's Christian Bale's performance. Yeah. Like I knew he was a good actor and like, like I knew that. Right. But I think mm-hmm. I've only ever seen him playing American roles. Like in House mm. of Newcastle, he was doing an American accent. Yeah. In like any every clip I've seen from American Psycho, he's doing an American accent. Uh, the Batman, he's doing an American accent. I think I forgot maybe that he was British, or like I just knew <laughs> that he was British in my mind, but like I never like saw him in anything doing a, like any kind of British accent. It's uh-huh. like if you only ever saw clips of David Tennant from Doctor Who. Not knowing that yeah. he was Scottish. You're like, oh, he's got this... Like, Christian Bale, like, the accent is a big part of it, because he's doing, like, this... Is it... I don't know if it's, like, northern or southern, but it's, like, like some kind of, like, rural English country accent. Yeah, and it's just... It's so different from any other role I think I've ever seen him in. Like, just this... Like, maybe a little bit broody, but, like, mostly he's just kind of earnest. And like trying to do the things he loves with the people he loves. Yeah. It's just such a real, it's fascinating character. It's really, really good. Yeah. Uh, which is why I was so devastated when I hit the ending and I didn't realize. I texted Ethan and I think he told you that I had texted him. Uh-huh. And I was just like so devastated by the ending. Yeah. And I was like, I wasn't expecting that. And Ethan would just reply to me and was like, well, it's what happened. He, we'd watched it with somebody else and they had said like, I didn't like that because it ma- like put a downer on the whole thing. And our response is like, it would be un like, you're not, you can't go out and expect that he's going to go and win next year. Right. Like you can't do that because this is what actually happened. No, exactly. Right. Um, But and like, the, even the way that they frame his death is so heartfelt because he's, like I said, he's doing, what he loves with people he loves. He's racing cars, trying to figure out how to build a faster car. Yeah. And like, there's nothing in the world that he would have rather been doing at the time of his death, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I think those kinds of scenes, they portray sort of a realism in death, right? Like death is sudden. And sometimes death is really tragic. And it's a bit of a shock to your system. That just, that's just how it goes. Well, I'm glad you liked liked it. it a lot. Yeah, it was good. I'm trying to find points of comparison in my mind to Stranger Than Fiction. I don't really think there are any. Yeah, they're pretty. Uh, they're pretty different films. Pretty, pretty not similar in any way. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have anything you want to say about Stranger Than Fiction? I think in a similar way. Well, I don't know about similar actually. Maybe, maybe they're opposites in that way because you saying, you know, the Ford Ferrari, him. I'm gonna sorry for the spoilers. Him dying at the end is very sudden and very shocking. Whereas Stranger Than Fiction, that was established in like the first five minutes, right? Is that he's going to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and then his it's death shocking is a- and surprising when he doesn't die. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So I, I think, you know, like Forty Ferrari kind of encapsulates this idea of loving what you do in life. And Stranger Than Fiction kind of inversely talks about, you know, how you can find meaning and joy in life, regardless of when death, when you, you know that death is inevitable. That's where it has sort of the universal human message, yeah. is that it says uh, you can know 
exactly when you're going to die. He learns partway through the movie. He is able to read the rest of his life and that doesn't give his life any less meaning to him. In fact, it makes him value the life that he has all the more, which is why I think maybe this movie should have been paired with Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, because that is a central theme of Puss in Boots 2, is Puss in Boots <laughs> finding value in the time that he has left. Sorry, just wanted to surprise you there. That's very funny. I like that we now have two other potential pairs for Stranger Than Fiction, and one of them yes. is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, and one of them is Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, yeah. both of which seem very different to me but seem to somehow be tied thematically to this weird little rope bridge that is Stranger Than Fiction. It's the most tenuous of string connections. Yeah, is there anything that you want to talk about with Stranger Than Fiction? I mean, not really. This is the film that I've seen the least recently, yeah. so I'm not really all that positive of like what I would say about it. Um, Anyways... Pick and choose whatever that you want for the rest of the podcast. Because <laughs> I think we've spent too long talking about 40 Ferrari. I think so, too. Um, and I think of the two, I like Ford v. Ferrari better, and I think I want to put it forward. Okay, let's do it. Uh, Black Panther versus Wilder People next. Any thoughts? Just at a glimpse of these two movies, the thing that immediately comes to mind for me are the emotional impacts that Wilder People has had when I watched the film, because you, you, you know, I think about when uh, he talks about his time that he spent in the system and like his friend that died and how like you don't ever like find a new family. You just stay in the system until it breaks or until you're kicked out because it's a broken system. Uh, Julian Dennison is phen- a phenomenal actor I really hope he gets some more dramatic stuff in his career. He's pretty good in Deadpool too. I've seen I've seen the PG thirteen edit of that. Uh, I've also seen Kong v Godzilla or whatever it's called, and he's in that and he has like a minor role and he's a comedic character. But he's really really good at kind of pulling your heartstrings a bit because there's that scene. There's the scene where he makes the haiku about the time that he and Heck have spent together out in the bush. And then there's the scene I almost cry every single time when Heck makes the haiku for him. Me and this fat kid, we ran, we ate, or something, and something, something, and it was the best. I'm like, ah, because that's the core of this movie, is the relationship that these two have, how it grows and develops, and how you can put yourself into it, right? This is not, like, like... It's almost an everyman story because you can relate this to pretty much any relationship that you could have with someone, like on a on a on a friend level, right? Like the emotional connection that you want to build with a human is something that is very real and very like it's hard to capture in movies because usually in movies you're a friend with someone or you're not a friend, and relationships are very stagnant in a lot of movies. I found, but with Hunt for the Wilder People. Taika Waititi makes the effort of showing what it's like to build a friendship with someone and how you can go to care for them in the middle of normal life. So tender. I think there's a really interesting gender aspect here because mm-hmm. um, the foster mom, whose name I always forget, um, 
spoiler alert, we don't believe in spoilers here, uh, ends up dying over the course of the film, connects with Ricky on such a deep level so quickly as a person, right? And she just is like the archetypical sweet foster mom. And then having to watch Heck and Ricky have to, or like having Heck and Ricky bond over there. I don't want to call it a fridging because it's like not violent. It's not really like a shock. And like they do make light of the death. So like it's not really a fridging in the sense of a fridging. But they do use like her kindness and her warmth because like that was the kind of person that she was, right? She just drew people to her. Like, even people like, heck, former convict, kind of ornery, and then Ricky, like, the worst is against the kids, quote-unquote. And the way that you can feel that same kindness reverberating throughout the film, is just it's just, it's like a warm hug of a film. It's just so sweet. Yeah, I just, I, I don't really know what else I have to say about it. It's just very good. Yeah. I would say also, like, none of the comedy in the film ever feels like dumb comedy to me and i think it's because all of the comedy is very much based on who these characters are as characters right they are outlandish and weird and crazy characters but their characters you know they're real people i'm like a weird and crazy person right we know weird and crazy people like this and to some extent this is very realistic in how sometimes people are real idiots. Yeah. The, when you say comedy in the film, the first thing that always comes to mind is uh, Taika Waititi play, himself playing as the yes. priest. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, like, I can't even remember what the line is, but just... The door, the Is it at doors? the funeral that he's doing it? Is that... Yes. He only appears at the funeral. In life, there are two doors. One door, you go through that door, and there's all the nummiest chuck, you know, Burgering Fanta Fanta LNP. There's another door, a door that's harder to get through. Yeah. Contrasting, it's hard to contrast that movie with Black Panther. I feel like this is a bigger gap than the other one. I think that Black Panther has a lot of really great things going for it. And one thing that really keeps it from being a 100% in my book, and that thing is that at its core, at its deep, darkest, dark heart of, of the film, it is still a Marvel movie. Yeah, I think that's it for me, too. Like, and it's chained It's chained to that. It has to be in the MCU, and it can't really be all of what it wants to be, all of what it could be, because of that. Does that make sense? It's, yeah, it's, no, it's a real shame. Um... I, I I feel like I have to look into Ryan Coogler's other directed works now. Like he brings such interesting themes to the MCU. Yeah. But I want to see what he can do without being tied to it. You know. <laughs> yeah. So he's made the two Black Panther movies. He has made Creed, and then he made one called Fruit Vale Station that I've never heard of. It says it's based on the events of leading to the death of Oscar Grant. A young man killed in 2009 by rapid area Bay Area Rapid Transit police officer Johannes Messerl at the Fruitvale District Station in Oakland. Yeah, that's, so that's what I'm thinking, and I have Hunt for the Wilder People going through. Okay. Yeah, we can push that. That's fine. We can. Do we want to whittle down even further here, or do we want to move on? 
and just like come I think back we can move on and go you know, like like sort of section like do all the sixteens first and then all the eights and then the four and then the two and then. But this next matchup I found has some really interesting parallels, and I hope that we get some really good discussion out of it. Uh, yeah, I was Egypt just thinking about that. that. Yeah, because like I. I like I was thinking about it even before I went in and watched Selma, that like oh these are going to have a lot of similar themes, and then I watched Selma and I was like yes these are a lot of very similar themes. Talk about talk about your experience with Selma. Okay, it was oh my gosh I I don't know I have a really hard time with um, biopics a lot of the time. You know uh-huh. what I mean like because you seem to be a pretty big fan of biopics. And I'm yes. like less of a fan of biopics. <laughs> like, uh, just every single one I've ever seen, not every one I've ever seen, but like a lot of them are very like just the same. Do you know what I mean? Like it's they yeah. all have like the uh-huh. same color grading. It's it's exactly what uh, weird is making fun of, right? Like there's the tropes, and there's so many movies that play to the tropes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just, yeah. and But, like, Selma really stood out to me as being, like, an actual artistic endeavor and not just, like, trying to recreate a story, right? It's, yeah, you know, Ava DuVernay really delving into the desperation and tension that was going on in the American South at the time. And it just was incredible. And I think that the first theme that really, really spoke to that for me was the scene where the children are killed in the church bombing. Mm-hmm. Just like, like there are hints of it throughout the opening scenes, but like you get just a moment to pause and breathe with those mm-hmm. kids for a second. Like they're, and they're such cute little kids, like just talking yeah. about like, you know, like, Oh, I love, you know, Miss King's hair or Mrs. King's hair. I really want to learn how to do my hair like hers. And like, like there's so much happiness and joy in those children. And then that bomb goes off, and I just felt my heart break for those yeah. people. And I just, like, it just, it left me feeling dirty. <laughs> like, just, and it was so effective in preaching to me personally, you know, a white person that has never personally experienced the kind of racial discrimination that has, you know, been going on in America for centuries. And it just, like, it, I, I think that that. Like, I, I hate to think that Avery DuVernay was trying to make a film for a white audience, because I don't yeah. think that that was her goal. But it was still extremely effective for me as a white audience member mm-hmm. to understand the tension and the desperation that these people are feeling, you know? Yeah. And it, just, it was so effective, and it was very gripping. Um, mm-hmm. I think also... I also it, was, go ahead, yeah. It's, it's very very successful in doing that in part because like you were talking about with biopics, it's not really a full biopic in the, it's not trying to show the full life of Martin Luther King Jr. And more concerned about communicating the feeling. Mm -hmm. It's, it's saying, you know, we're taking this snapshot, this portion of life, Dr. King's life and, you know, other people, all the other people who are, whose lives are being entwined with that and presenting just this part and what this part specifically, 
has to tell because everyone everyone in America knows or should know who Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is, right? Everyone ha- know like we there's a day that we commemorate him and his life and the life of other people who were working who worked in in the civil rights movement thing. and you know so so it's not saying here's the history of it again you've heard of the history a thousand times it's saying here is trying to do i think is help us understand what it was like to be a person right to be martin luther king jr to be a black person during that time and to have that discrimination and it says you know this is what actually happened and how maybe you're not understanding this correctly. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, Cause we, we kind of get this discussion every year, right. That like, like around Martin Luther King day specifically that like Martin Luther King was not just, you know, a pacifist. He was trying to, you know, roll over and <laughs> I'm going to try to speak into words, something that people have observed and that has been talked about but that i myself am not an expert in so we'll see how it goes maybe i'll just have to cut this whole thing out you know kind of the way that we frame martin luther king versus malcolm x you know like the peaceful protest versus like the violent protest and kind Mm -hmm. of condemning violent protest you know in favor of the peaceful thing and like you know preaching martin luther king jr because he was you know quote unquote a pacifist when Mm -hmm. like he was so much more than that. Like, it's not just that he was, you know, protesting peacefully and that you're wrong if you decide to get angry. No, mm-hmm. he was extremely angry. And, like, he was, like, a lot of other, you know, Black civil rights leaders at the time. Like, he was tempted to use violence sometimes. And, like, mm-hmm. the things that he was doing in trying to protect his people were kind of inherently violent. Like, because when black people are being perceived as a threat, like, everything you do is violent, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, he wasn't trying to be this sacrificial lamb. He was trying to lead his people in the way that he thought was best. And I think that this film takes a really interesting and nuanced view of that, and not just saying, you know, like, Martin Luther King is not to borrow a word from the, uh, the Asian... Uh, community, the uh, Asian diaspora here, that like he's not your model minority. He was mm-hmm. a real person with thoughts and feelings and a deep faith in God, and he was trying to do his best for his people in the way that he knew how. And like yeah. he, he didn't really care if it was affecting you, if it was violent or not. He was just trying to do what was best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know and I, mean? I think... Yeah, I think also that that has some interesting rollover with the Prince of Egypt, right? And this idea of Moses. No, yeah, Martin Luther King is very much a Moses figure to me after watching yes. uh-huh. Yeah, Yeah, and especially the way that it portrays, the Prince of Egypt portrays Moses as being this human figure, right? He doesn't feel like he's worthy to be called a god. He feels... You know, like he goes and he says, why me? Why can't you choose somebody else? In the actual Bible, <laughs> he says that he's slow of speech. Sorry, I don't want to, not trying to use the actual Bible. <laughs> it's this struggle of when, when you either by being called to it or 
by gaining kind of the knowledge and the experience to be able to lead a group of people uh, just does not mean that you automatically will easily lead them or that you will feel like you're qualified to lead them. They're both such good. I'm having a really hard time deciding which one I want to go forward on this because I think that they both do it so beautifully. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, like if, yeah, I don't know. Because I think I think part of the part of the difference between these two is how well it's interesting. Selma is very much you know like portraying the feeling or trying to portray the feeling of the '60s uh, and the the movement that w- Martin Luther King was associated with there in a very realistic sense, so that you feel like you are a part of it, right? You feel like you're engaged with it. Whereas Prince of Egypt is very stylized and very sort of artistic in a kind of a different way that it's saying, you know, like we have this telling of Moses leading the Hebrew people out of Egypt. We're going to be very, very artistic with it. And I would say it kind of, it kind of leans away from the, like you could try to ground it in historical realism, right? You could try to pull a, what was that one movie that Christian Bale was in? The Moses one? Exodus, Gods, and Kings. (laughs) You could try to take this other version of it, right? Where you're like, well, let's, you know, try to understand what it might actually have been like, right? Let's try to like put realism into it. But instead, they went fully into the, we're telling this story. We're not trying to present biblical realism. We're trying to tell the story that people can relate to. And so I think in relating something that happened very efficiently, effectively versus relating something that is meant to relate to you as a person, that's where the problem is because these are both very good for, you know, they're, they're very good at telling a very similar story for very different reasons. I think very different ways. Yeah. Um, so I guess it comes down to, do you like realistic or do you like stylistic more? I'm going to be honest. I like stylistic more. I, uh, honestly, I do too. Like, not that Selma isn't a wonderfully stylized film in and of itself, because it is. Yes. It's beautiful and it's wonderful. And Ava DuVernay is a genius. But also, I just really like Prince of Egypt. <laughs> I really don't think that this is a matter of, like, one movie is better than the other. No, definitely not. This I don't is a even matter know of... if it's. It's just a matter of following the heart, I guess, you know? Yeah. And having to choose one over the other. Yeah, having to is being the key one. Okay, so Prince of Egypt. Uh, Coco versus Interstellar. The one point of comparison that's coming up for me is the portrayal of family in these films. I think it's really Mm, interesting how Coco does, like, generational connection and... Interstellar does like immediate family connection. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand. I think we covered, I covered both of these movies very well when we talked about them on their episodes in the podcast. And I think that's partly why both of them got up to here is because of how I feel about them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's fair. Um, I think they're both. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I don't even know where to start with both of these. Okay. Um. I do know where to start. I'm sorry. Let's talk about the music. <laughs> I would say the number one thing, if you want to like gauge if I will love a movie or not, is to put 
just the most tender and heartfelt music into the movie because then I will like it. (laughs) But um, so so Interstellar is really good at using the music to portray feeling within the scenes, right? You have the scene where he's watching Murph, not Murph. Murph is the daughter. What's his name? Cooper is like literally watching his kids grow up through movie through film that they send him after he's been on the planet where time goes fast. And the the meme where Matthew McConaughey is crying. Yes, that's the meme. But like, and yes, that's a meme. It's for a good really reason. affecting moment. Yeah, yeah. But it's a very affecting moment, right? Because you understand his situation. You're like, can you imagine? living that life away from your kids and you know for you it's been a few minutes for them their whole life they're growing up and he is not there for them but contrast that with coco the music in this specifically pushes the story forward because it's a gateway to understanding coco's not coco um miguel's is why he does what he does. What's the word for that? The raison d'etre? Sure. Reason for being, yeah. His motivation, his motivation, right, is the music. And so the way that they make that an aspect of his character and his family's history, really, it's so, it's so intertwined so beautifully with the rest of it. It's not an extra layer on top that's adding emotion to the scene. It's the reason that the scene is emotional. Yeah, it's... I don't have anything else to say. I don't know. It's very good. Um, On the other hand, right, um, I think that Interstellar is able to maintain the interwoven story throughout the entirety of it in a way that keeps me connected to the story and to the movie in a way that I think Coco loses me a little bit in the middle of the story. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah. Like, when Coco was running around telling everybody that the famous guy is his dad and the famous guy believes... or is his granddad, and the famous guy yes. believes him, or he didn't realize that he didn't have kids. I don't really even mm. know what Ernesto's plan was at that point, because, like... Yes, I am. What are you trying to do, guy? <laughs> yeah, no. But I think that, like, you know, it it makes me check out just a little bit, whereas Interstellar is able to keep me on the hook throughout the whole movie because of how it winds this very complex science-y story and wraps it with human characters that we care a lot about. Yep, and it does it all in a neat little bow. We can let uh, Interstellar move forward. I am perfectly okay with that. Okay. Okay. That's my side of the bracket. I'm getting into my stuff now. How exciting. Whoa. Whoa. Okay, Shuri Show versus Jojo Rabbit. Um, I will say, having recently rewatched Truman Show, I think my uh-huh. instinct here is pushing me towards Jojo Rabbit. I would agree with that. Okay, good. So we can talk about that a little bit more. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I think Jojo is just much more heartfelt. Mm-hmm. Like, I think rewatching the Truman Show back, I think that it's kind of relying on 
a little bit of a shock value almost like like not like maybe not shock value because like you know from the beginning that Truman's on a TV show like that is being yeah. pitched to you immediately but like also like it does it is kind of using shock tactics kind of like a what will Truman do next um next will he find out that everyone in his life is lying to him will he find out that his wife is in love with his best friend <laughs> or whatever I don't think that's actually true but like. They do conspire a lot. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, that, that's entirely apropos. Um, like, as fascinating as the themes in the Truman Show are, and as much as I think that those themes do still apply, I think that the Truman Show is less interested in exploring those themes than we are. Like, it kind of yeah. presents... Like, it. you know, we talk about how it was so prescient in predicting influencer culture... Mm-hmm. you know like the advertising thing that's all just kind of symptoms of how of or like side effects of the story that they were trying to tell about this man growing up in this enormous dome in hollywood like like they they weren't trying to make a point about it they were just trying to tell a really interesting story yeah and it works i mean it's a great film but on the mm-hmm. other side i do think that taika waititi and the themes in jojo rabbit you know specifically about love and learning to overcome prejudice with love are so much more intentional and i think that they're much more powerful for it just yeah yeah um that, that's my little spiel i like jojo rabbit a lot it, it's good film and i think it's better than truman show as much as i love truman show yeah i i think i agree uh there's not much that i would add to that i think that's a really good summary of the truman show's being only as much as it was meant to be. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. No, exactly. Yeah. And Wally versus Mononoke. I think we could have a really interesting discussion about Wally versus Mononoke. Because, like, uh-huh. again, we're kind of getting like the environmental themes from two way different perspectives. Two incredibly different perspectives. I don't. I'm kind of having a hard time with this one because, like, if we're looking specifically just at the environmental theme, I think that Wally's is one that just as specifically an American consumer, I can relate to a lot more than Princess Mononoke. Mm-hmm. But I think overall, I just like the art of Princess Mononoke better. Like, it's just, it's so pretty. And like, I love <laughs> Joe Hushayshi's music. Like, not that I don't love Wally's music too, obviously. Like, I don't know. It's really hard. I rewatched Princess Mononoke pretty recently. And at the beginning, I had this thought that was like, this is all really pretty. But what is kind of there for me to take away, right? And I then I actually re- I remembered that when the first time I watched it, I had a very similar reaction. Okay. Um, kind of doesn't show right up front what what the message is because everyone is running around and doing their own things and trying to get what they want or what they need, right? Every character is okay. like this. And that only stops when Ashitaka and San only stops when, right? Like, so, so there's all these characters. You have Prince Ashitaka. He has to go and break the curse on his arm. You have San, who she has to fight the people that she's against, right? She has to fight the villagers. Lady Eboshi has to protect her village and keep mining so that they can make money to help people, right? Uh, Jikobo 
has to, or Jigo is in the English version apparently, has to like make money. Right? <laughs> everyone has a reason for doing what they're doing, and everyone is a bit selfish, and that only that ends up making a bigger disaster because everyone is selfish. I think that Prince Ashitaka and San are a part of the problem at the beginning of the movie. And that is only fixed. The curse on Prince Ashitaka only is removed really once he starts looking outside of himself and helping other people with their problems. Because everyone has their own small problems that are different. And then everyone has the one big problem that they really don't want to happen, which is the, the forest the, uh, ecological meltdown. Yeah. <laughs> Complete, yes, exactly. Exactly. And it only all what, what it takes is looking outside of yourself, but that's what it takes. Right. And I, that's the real message of the story. That's at the, by the end of the movie, I'm like beautiful, wonderful, perfect. I love it. And I had like, it's that build up to the end. Right. I would say there's sort of a similar theme within Wally, right? Because you have the people who they're on their like they're looking at their screens, and it takes literally stepping out of their chair in order to take control of their own lives, and in thus doing, take control of the situation and help other people. That's so interesting to me Um, because I think it's very similar. But what you were saying about how Ashitaka and San need to learn to look outside of themselves and help each other before they can help themselves mm-hmm. um, is really fascinating in the way that Wally is programmed to be a helper robot, right? Like yes. he's, he has one purpose in life. Well, he has one programmed purpose in life and it is to <laughs> crush trash and be helpful. He's so friendly yes. and like, it's not really a character development for him. It's just, he is friendly the entire film mm-hmm. like that is yeah. not something that changes it's just that he is friendly and he is helpful and he always like and like he in in that way he convinces and i'm not saying that like this is better or worse necessarily than princess mononoke is because i mean i think like i mean kind, kindness and helpfulness are both character traits that people both have and not have and they can yeah. gain and lose them over the course of a lifetime. Like, and they're mm-hmm. just kind of two different characters, like Ashitaka and Wally are. Like, they just, it's like, of course they are. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, those, um, I'm having a meltdown. Um, You're good. I think, too, right? The, the effect that Wally has, Wally is not there in order to change, he is there in order to provide change for others. It is his effect on the life of other people that allow them to look outside of themselves and see how they can help. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Mm-hmm. He is, he's very much not like your standard hero in any, by any stretch of the imagination. He's just mm-hmm. a little robot. Yeah, he's just a little guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what he does, he's a catalyst that comes in and changes things. And in changing things, he provides the change necessary for other people. Now, having had that discussion, I'm even more hard-pressed to choose which one of these I like better. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. The moral of the story is you can be the change. Yes, you, listener, 
You can be the change. Be the change you wish to see in the world. Do you have an idea of which one you're leaning towards? So, for me, personally, I would say Princess Mononoke goes a little bit deeper in understanding each of the characters and thus in so doing is able to shoot higher i'm i'm picturing like you put like a water bottle full of air under <laughs> in a pool and you pull it underwater and it shoots up higher does that make sense it yeah, doesn't make sure. sense it's a weird we, allegory we've got two bottle rockets and one is flying just slightly higher than the other yeah i i think yeah. that i think that it digs a little deeper into the characters and the mistakes that they make, it allows for characters to make mistakes, right? And allows for them to change a little bit. And so I think I like Princess Mononoke just a little bit better. I will accept that. Much as we love you, Wally, it's a good film. But also, we are adults and you are a film for children. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, Inception versus Knives Out. I think First Instinct tells me that I want Inception to move forward because. Inception is like quote unquote one of my favorite films and I love it. It's really good. But also Knives Out is also good and we should give it the credit that it deserves. Especially because I watched Glass Onion and I liked Glass Onion so much and I was reminded of how much I liked first Knives Out. Yeah. Did you watch Glass Onion yet? I have not yet watched Glass Onion. You haven't watched Joshua. You of all people like Knives Out like the most of anybody I know. Yeah, I should probably watch it. It's really good. You would really like it. Well, now that that discussion's out of the way, um, are, are, are there really any other comparison points to this movie? I mean, they're so different in tone. They are. They're very different. And that's all we have to say about that. <laughs> I don't know that there's really a common point that we can talk about. Other than that, they're both very, very beautifully crafted, right? Like, just talking about sort of the way that the movies are presented to the audience. They're both very good puzzles. But I just like Inception that much more. So <laughs> I'm fine with that. I'm totally okay. Cool. Yeah. Inception moves on. You want to try to explain why you like Inception that much so that we don't have disproportionate <laughs> uh, times for each of our. Sure. Um, I mean, I talked about it, but like, I think it's just like a symptom of me being me that I like films that are twisty. Like, I like complication. Um, yeah. But also, I'm learning that I really like spectacle. <laughs> like, I just, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's like, it was like the biggest spectacle movie when it came out, and it has never stopped being that. Um, but, like, at the same time, even as I rewatch it, for, continue really watch it for the spectacle, um, it increases in depth each time I watch it. Like, on, on this most recent rewatch, I was really intrigued by Elliot Page's character, Ariadne. Um, and their connection to the rest of the group, you know, kind of being this weird outsider, but also like immediately jumping into being like the heart of the group, besides like even Arthur. Like Arthur was kind of shouldering the burden, but then Ariadne comes in, kind of takes that burden off of his shoulders. Mm -hmm. And like he's just kind of allowed to be cool now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like I said, I like spectacle, and there's just like, there's, I like spectacle, I like character. Um, I like the music is very good. Um, I don't even know who does the music in this film off the top of my head. I don't want to. Uh, Hans Zimmer. It is Hans Zimmer. Okay. Hans Zimmer's on TikTok, and he's actually really delightful. You should. I I always am always telling you to get a TikTok, but you should like follow him on Instagram or something. 
because I'm sure he crossbows yeah. there because he seems to have a team. Anyway, uh, random asides. Um, there's I there's something that I was really drawn to in films just generally where characters have pasts that are not shown, but that are like clearly affecting. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, every character has a backstory, right? Like they have to, but like some films do not delve into backstory the way that I want them to. Uh huh. And Inception does it really, really well in that, like, I, I'm always, I've always been so intrigued by, like, characters that are, maybe this is more of my uh, trauma coming back to bite me here, but, like, characters that kind of start out as, like, young, bright-eyed ingenues, starting the movie off being cynical, having lost that joie de vivre, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, you know, kind of, like, lo- having lost the thread of what they're interested in and learning to regain it over the course of the film or over the course of the story as it may be like there, there's something so fascinating about um like it's almost nostalgia i guess but like it's not nostalgia because like it's not me looking back on something i used to love it's me watching a character look back on something they used to love like inception does it really well in that like you know like Cobb is continually haunted by the ghosts of his past and like he's eternally either trying to escape from or face them, and he's not really even sure which one most of the time. And mm-hmm. I, just, I find it really fascinating as a character concept, and it's a really cool thread, and it's something that I'm clearly drawn to. So, and yeah. that's my spiel about why I like Inception. <laughs> All right, on to the final, the final two for the sweet sixteen. For the first half of this episode, yeah. Yes. Uh, much Ado and Everything Everywhere. Um, you watched Everything Everywhere all at once. What did you think? I watched both of these, actually. Oh, that's good. Okay. But, like, Everything Everywhere was the one you hadn't seen before. Yes. So, let me talk about Everything Everywhere all at once. There's so much to talk about. There's so much to think about in this movie. Because it it weaves together so well different main themes, right? Because... Like, I think I may have mentioned this before, but I had heard so much about Waymond in Everything Everywhere that I was like, oh, I think I have, like, the basic gist of the movie down. I didn't even know until I started watching the movie that they have a daughter named Joy, and that Joy is, like, more central to the movie than Waymond is. Yeah, totally, that's, right? That's how much there is to talk about this movie. Mm-hmm. So... The things that really stand out to me are uh, Wayman's character is very like I think I think Wayman's character is the thing that I connect with best in this movie because I am a guy and so this there's this aspect of what it means to be a man that I'm very well acquainted with and how how I perceive the world right how i want to interact with the world how i'm told to interact with the world Mm -hmm. and i love the way that it presents women's argument for being kind right because that's the catalyst for change nothing is changing in any of the universes everything is staying the same and everything's bad very similar to what we just talked about with wally and princess mononoke until Evelyn takes on women's worldview of understand trying to understand other people and why they aren't being kind, right? 
and how you can be kind instead. How you don't have to be aggressive when you are confronted with aggression. I think I really relate to that a lot. I really like that message that is being told, and I don't think that that message is necessarily told enough, right? No, definitely not, yeah. No, and then I also think that they do. Evelyn enjoys relationships really well, too. I really love the scene where Joy is, like, leaving, and Evelyn and Waymond are there, and Evelyn tells her that she loves her in her own way, right? Because she's learned things from Waymond, but this is still Evelyn talking. This isn't, she, you know, this, she's still her own character. She still has her own frustrations. And this is her way of saying this. You know, I've learned, I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to tell you that I love you to Joy. No, definitely. Um, the one I most recently watched this, I watched it with mom, actually. <laughs> which is, It's a very weird experience watching a film about a fraught mother-daughter relationship with your mother. Uh, <laughs> relation, excuse me re- your relationship is not particularly fraught um, yeah which like mine and mom's used to be kind of um but it's definitely mellowed in recent years yeah um, and nowhere near nowhere near what is portrayed here no definitely not yeah like still like the the scene that got me was that scene where evelyn is you know com- kind of comes out and says you know what, I do actually think all of these things, but it doesn't matter because I do still love you. And even if the universe continues to make us feel small and unimportant, I will spend every useless minute of time with you because I love you. And that yeah. is what made me cry most recently. <laughs> like That being said, I do think that the absurdist aspects of the movie at times took me out of it. Took took away a bit for me. I think that they could take away for others too. Does that make no, sense? No, for sure. I I think that a lot of people had that same reaction. Yeah. Um. And I will say that I understand that. Uh huh. But also, that's kind of the fun of the movie for me is the challenge of caring about all of it. Yeah. I think it's a matter of personal preference, right? Like this could either add to what is going on, and some of, some of it did. Some of it was funny for me, and some of it I was like, this is just, I feel like this is a little too directly, like, meta for me. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah. Like, like, like I was taken out of it a little bit. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even say that for me, I connected to every single meta aspect of the film. Because, yeah. like, there was definitely some of it that, like, like that takes me, uh, like, even still takes me out of it. Um, The guy with um the, uh, the sex dungeon behind his desk, that's kind of weird for me like i don't yeah. that's not something uh-huh. i connect to immediately you know i'm so fascinated by the challenge of learning to care about everything in the film you know that what i mean sense. it's yeah uh-huh. like it's all of it is stupid and asinine and you don't necessarily need any of it to tell a compelling story mm-hmm. but because it's there they're challenging you to care about it in the way that evelyn is learning to care about it and it's, it's, I think it's a really fascinating exercise for me, but like, it's again, it's personal taste, right? It's, that's just what I was drawn to. I also think it's very similar to Taika Waititi's storytelling format, right? Where he yes, injects sure. all of the tragedy with comedy, but mm-hmm. it's almost like a step further, right? It's going into this, like, uh, literally, I mean, that's why it's an absurdist comedy drama, right? And I think that's, that's part of the, the movie that I think I it's not that it makes it a, a worse movie for me, 
but it, it's more like it keeps me from fully engaging with the movie. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah. And that's that's fair, right? Let's try and find a point of comparison for Much Ado About Nothing. Um... <laughs> Can I talk about the, the Much Ado About Nothing for a minute? Actually, yeah, go ahead. Because yeah. I watched this recently and everything is so fresh. Okay, the first thing that came to my mind, well, not the first thing, I wrote down the list of things because I was taking notes on this movie. And one of the things that came to my mind was that this is this is a like literally the opposite of a traditional tragedy. This is literally Shakespeare going, what if I wrote a tragedy, but everything worked out? Mm-hmm. Which is why it's called Much Ado About Nothing, right? Because I was, th- well, this is specifically, everyone is, all of the actors are so great in this film. Actually, the standout is Michael Keaton. He really is. He's such a good dog, Barry. <laughs> he's so good at being a dog, Barry. And make, like, I literally was busting up laughing at his scenes. Yeah, I said it in the um, first episode, and I will say it until I'm blue in the face. A good yes. dog, Barry, makes an adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing. And Michael Keaton is Seriously. so good. Oh, my gosh. Seriously. Um, that being said, so, like, Kenneth Barnett, great. Emma Thompson, great. Mm-hmm. Robert Leonard, He's pretty good. You know, like, Claudio and Hero, you're not really here to see them. No. <laughs> as great as they are, they're, you're they're not really here to see them. Little ingenues, you're not here for their development. Yeah. Denzel Washington, he's fantastic, actually, in this movie. He's really good. He's so fun. He's another one of the stars. But Keanu Reeves doesn't have a whole lot to do with Don John. And that's because he is a tragic villain in a in, in a, a it is not a tragedy, right? He's a tragic yep. villain in a comedy, and so he wants so badly to be work. Iago. He's trying so hard. <laughs> Seriously, that's what I thought. I was like, I was like, in another story, Don John would be Iago, but he's not. He's just, <laughs> he's not. He just nothing that he does works because he's in a comedy, and everything will work out. So that that was really interesting for me to think about. Right? Was that this is like. Yeah, so I think the 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 at the very beginning of the movie, it's very good. I mean, the very beginning is unnes- unnecessary. I think the whole the whole title sequence is unnecessary to me. Well, yeah, I mean, we could just cut to people talking to each other, but yep, that's whatever it is. You know, they want they want to show off on their horses. Yep, they want to show off the big Tuscan villa that they rented for filming. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then going into I was very connected with the scheming, the different like plots that were going on. Don Pedro is wanting to get Claudio and Hero together, right? And so he's like, oh, I have the plan to make it work. And you're like, oh, you're with Claudio. And you're like, oh, is he going to make it work? Or is he going to take Hero for himself? You know, it's this, you're, you're drawn in, right? And then with Beatrice and Benedict, that is kind of the core of this story i feel like and that is what people always come back to are is when when they are set up basically when they both hear false accounts of how they love each other and then their different interactions and their different like soliloquies and stuff but i also think i also think like towards the middle going into the end really the only thing that was keeping me going was dogberry (laughs) The plot kind of gets wrapped up without a whole lot of stuff happening. Yeah. Like, it's literally, it's much ado about nothing, right? And so once you understand 
once you understand what happened, you're like, okay, why isn't this wrapped up? Like, why is this still going, kind of? Mm-hmm. So, that being said, I do think that everything everywhere all at once should move forward. Do you feel that way? I do. As much as I love Much Ado About Nothing, I think Everything Everywhere is such a tight film, and it does exactly what it needs to at every turn. Yeah. You know, give or take some absurdist elements that some people may like and some people may not. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, like, I'm trying to think of what I would do to change Much Ado to make it better in my mind. And, like, the only other comparison I'm drawing is Joss Whedon's version. And we all know that Joss Whedon is my arch nemesis, so obviously I didn't um, like his version. Have but... you seen the staged version where that has David Tennant and... and Captain Ta- I've seen clips of Captain it, and Tate. I really do like that one. That's a really fun it's one, like, from what I've seen. Uh, okay, Benedict, can, oh, I can always get a laugh out of him. But... Mm-hmm. I was just doing a, like, a direct comparison between the two while I was watching the version from the film. Mm-hmm. And just the the perfectly timed slapstick comedy of David Tennant's <laughs> acting He's was so fantastic. much better. There's also, he brings kind of like a patheticness to Benedict. That's going to sound really weird. But, like, no, the patheticness really makes it work in his case. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. he's just kind of a sad guy. Like yep. it's perfect. It's perfect for what Benedict's character is. Like exactly. Yeah, and it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So good. Okay. I feel like we should try to speed through this round a little bit quicker. Does that make sense? Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah. Okay. Um. Now that we've talked about each film again, let's see what we can't get. Um. Should we go from the top or from the bottom this time, or somewhere in the middle? Either way. Okay. I was trying to make you decide, but um. <laughs> okay. Let's start. Let's start with two. And then do four, and then do one, and then do three. Okay. So Mononoke versus Jojo Rabbit first. Yes. Okay. This is really hard. My heart is saying Jojo Rabbit, maybe. My heart is saying Jojo Rabbit also. Just the message is different. You know, it's more focused on the struggle that Jojo has and his growing up. I think that's something that is a little more relatable to me. Mm-hmm. in particular as a, as a, as the life that I have lived is a little more relatable than Princess Mononoke. Yeah. I think Jojo Rabbit is a little bit more personal, I think is what mm-hmm. you're trying to get at. Uh, where yeah. Princess Mononoke is kind of this wide scale, you know, sweeping fantasy epic and Jojo Rabbit is like it's still involved with the war but it brings the scale down a lot smaller to just this little boy in his internal world. Mm-hmm. And you know, it talks. It's very much about just him during the wartime, right? Yeah. It's very, very personal. So, Jojo Rabbit, it is. Jojo Rabbit, it is. All right. Uh, the next one. It's another Taika Waititi film. Wilder People versus Ford v Ferrari. Ooh, um, I'm kind of being. I think maybe it's just that I like Taika Waititi's directorial <laughs> style, but I'm kind of leaning towards Wilder People again. <laughs> I'm also leaning towards Wilder People. <laughs> There's just something warm about his films. Like each, each time, like I'm thinking about Jojo Rabbit, I'm thinking about Wilder People, and both of them are kind of like a warm hug for me, you know. Mm-hmm. And like as much as I love the nuance present in Ford v Ferrari, it's got to be Wilder People. Yep, Ford cool. v Ferrari is out. Sorry, Ethan. It's a good film. I said I that to get his attention, but he wasn't listening apparently. Okay. Ford v Ferrari is out. <laughs> <laughs> Got beat by Tell him it went out against people. older people. 
You said okay, that's fair. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but tell him I like Ford v Ferrari so much that I literally changed my France trip itinerary to include going to Le Mans. <laughs> <laughs> she said she liked Ford v Ferrari so much that she changed the itinerary in her France trip to go to Le Mans. <laughs> okay, everything everywhere all at once versus Inception. See, now we're getting to the really hard parts for me, because I love yeah. both of these films. Um, <laughs> do you have a way you're leaning? <laughs> it's hard for me, too, because I love the messages in a- EEAO, but I also have those parts of it that I really don't like, and I don't have those kinds of parts for Inception. It's For me, Inception is a lot more cohesive, a lot more like the the total movie is higher, but it doesn't hit those highs that everything everywhere at once also hits. Does that make sense? It's still got it's still got like the messages, you know, I think it's got to be everything everywhere. Like, I'm so sorry, Inception, but it's just it's not it's not pulling far ahead enough for me. I'm okay with that. I'm I'm okay with that. Okay. And then Interstellar versus do you have thoughts? I'm sorry. I'm I'm just think, trying to think about these two films. No, you're good. I just I thought I had lost you for a second. <laughs> you're good. They're just so very different. Can I tell you which way I'm kind of leaning and seeing if that helps you at all? Yeah, which way are you leaning? I'm kind of leaning towards Prince of Egypt, just because I feel like some of the sciency kind of more stuff in. Like that is present in all Christopher Nolan films, kind of pulls me out of like the last half of the movie, you know, where he's kind of like floating through the mirror dimension and like seeing Murph up at all these different random points. Here's here's what you're saying, Rebecca. Here's what you're saying, and here's why I agree with you. Interstellar, you watch with your head more than more so than Prince of Egypt, you watch with your heart, right? Like, there's also very heartfelt moments in Interstellar, but Prince of Egypt is all about the heart. I think that's why that's the, the choice for me, too. Good. Okay. I'm glad we decided that. So, Prince of Egypt. Okay. Final four. Good. Okay. Which one do we want to start with? I don't want to start with any of them. Let's just leave it there. We'll call them all winners. No, Joshua, come on. We have to find <laughs> a winner. Okay. Okay. Let's start with everything everywhere all at once for the rabbit. Like, as time goes on, I'm becoming more normal about everything, everywhere, all at once. I still love it. It's still a great movie. I'm not as obsessed with it as I was it's when not, I first saw it's it. It's not your fresh obsession. Well, that's how, that's how all tastes, right? It's not my fresh is, obsession. Right? When, yeah, when exactly. you taste something new, it's so much more poignant and vi- vibrant than when you taste it for the else. 15th time, right? Yeah. But, like, that being said, it's still outstripping all of these movies by so far. Like... <laughs> I think the message that it tells is so sweet and wonderful. And I don't think the Prince of Egypt is going to be a hunt for the wilder people. And I want to take a YTD movie to make it to the final. So I'm <laughs> going to bat for Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> okay. You know what? Given all that you said about the absurdist elements, I think I will let it go. Okay. Because I, I love everything everywhere. It is so tender. And it's such a heartwarming yeah. story about family and personal discovery and personal growth and, you know, the power of love and all of these great things. And also it's about being any other number of things. Um, So I do think, you know, I think that there are messages that anyone could 
take any everyone everyone should take me- messages from both of these movies that are both very important i think that's what makes it such a close race right yeah exactly right that being said i understand where you're coming from with the absurdist elements even if like i don't fully agree so i will allow jojo rabbit to go ahead and that's i'm so sorry everything everywhere all at once you were loved <laughs> this is how i felt about 1917 <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I honestly thought it was going to come down to everything everywhere and 1917. I mean, to, to a certain extent, that's kind of what I was thinking too, honestly, but um, there's, there's always a part of me when I'm reviewing, analyzing these movies that is like, how was, should, how is this perceived to a universal audience? No, exactly. Right. Does like, it make sense? Are, like if it was just us doing it, I might go to bat for everything everywhere a little bit harder. Yeah, but also, mm-hmm. we are doing this for an audience. Like, yes, we're trying uh, to recommend things more broadly. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I feel like people will relate to Jojo Rabbit more so in a holistic sense, right? I think that there are there are aspects of everything, everywhere, all at once that everyone can relate to. But I think that as uh, as the story, everyone is so familiar with World War Two and with. Mm-hmm this idea of growing up and understanding a changing of your worldview, right. That Mm -hmm. makes Jojo rabbit such an important message for people. Okay. Uh, Prince of Egypt versus wilder people. Um, You said you didn't think wilder people was going to make it out against Prince of Egypt. Do you want to elaborate on why? I was just worried that you were going to, um, well, actually, I don't know. Well, so I don't know. This is another really hard one because these are such two disparate movies, Mm -hmm. but they're also both so good in their own ways. And Prince of Egypt just has that. I don't know. I don't even know. It's got a secret sauce. Yeah. It's yeah. Just everything about it is so fantastic. Mm -hmm. Everything, everything that was put in, the more I read about the production of this movie, the more we're like, of course, of course this movie is as good as it was. (laughs) Yeah. Like, they did right. all of these great things. Of course it was going to be this good the whole time, right? Yeah, they put their heart and souls into writing this story that can be understood as a message of human hope and deliverance and faith, you know, patience, right? All of these all of these aspects that are wound together into a beautifully crafted story. And I think it's a bit more like, it leans pretty like heavily into those concepts without giving you a whole ton of levity that takes away from it. I do think in a similar way to everything, everywhere, all at once, there is comedy in the hunt for the wilder people that could detract from the messages. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And I also will say it would be very unfair of us to put two Taika Waititi films in the final. (laughs) Yes. That's the other thing I was thinking about. Okay, sure. So Prince of Egypt, that's fine. Okay, Jojo Rabbit versus Prince of Egypt. I don't know which of these is going to make it out of here. Um, I, th- I think it's really interesting the different paths that M- Moses and Jojo take because like, both of yeah. them start out as you know, kind of patriotic upstarts. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, they're both, they're both very like for for lack of a better term, I think they're both sort of brainwashed into having their worldview. They're very comfortable in their world worldview. They don't really want it to challenge it at all, but it gets challenged and they don't like it. And they both run away from it. And they both run away. And then both of them are 
brought back and made to consider the plight of the Jews. Actually, that's sad. I can't believe it's come down to that. Wow. Uh, <laughs> we're not even. This is a very uh, Abrahamic narrative that we're spinning in our. In a sense, it's sort of the story of learning to accept other people into your life, right? It's about opening up your view of others. For Jojo, it's the girl in his attic who is representative of these Jews suffering during the Holocaust, who is he is at first vehemently opposed to, mm-hmm. who he later comes to understand better. For for Moses, it's again, the, you know, there's this whole cast of slaves that he are enslaved people that he discovers he's a part of. And that changes his worldview so radically that he now seeks to understand them better. Right. He doesn't at first, I don't think, I think that's part of the message, right. When Aaron and who kind of, when he first meets Aaron and Aaron's like, uh, Oh, when did you start caring about us? Was it when you found out you were one of us? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about it's about no matter the cost, Moses is not running away from his responsibility and what he knows he can do, mm-hmm. which I think makes it a really great narrative. Yeah. I should go wa- rewatch Princess Shift. What's it on? It's a good film. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that part specifically calls to me a little bit more than Jojo Rabbit's. De- well, yeah, like maybe not more, but just in a different way because. Prince of Egypt is all about accepting who you are and, you know, like the parts about you that you cannot change and advocating for yourself and other people like you. Whereas Jojo Rabbit is learning to accept people who are not like you and learning to advocate for them as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, mm -hmm. because Jojo is kind of on the outside looking in and Moses is on kind of on Moses is interesting because he really has about halfway through the film. He has no place, right? He's not really one of the Hebrews. He's not really one of the Egyptians anymore. He's in this middle part where he has the ability to provide change, right? Opposed to Jojo, who is just always on the outside and changes his worldview to help learn how to look in and look at other people better. And like, I don't even know if I could, like, they're different, but like, I guess if I had to pick one to relate to more, I would say it would be Jojo Rabbit just like a titch more because, Uh you know, being a white middle class person living in the world today, like, that's kind of what you're called upon to do is, you know, to look inward at yourself and provide understanding and acceptance to groups that are not necessarily the same as you. But, you know, who you may have similarities to and who need your help in being an ally. Like, it's kind of, you know, it's it's kind of the how-to manual on how to begin being an ally. <laughs> Whereas, like, I don't know if I could ever relate to Moses as much in, like, a Prince of Egypt sense in that, like, mm-hmm. I don't think I have a secret family. Like, <laughs> am I going to be called upon to, like, call some... I don't, I don't know if it's going to come down to that for me, though, just because. Yeah, I think we have to you know, consider kind of the whole movie. Yeah. All aspects of it. Yeah. And that's that's a very I, that's an interesting point that you brought up. That it, it's sort of a because the, the narrative of 
the Prince of Egypt is juggled between Moses's personal journey and the journey of um, the Hebrews as a whole. Yeah. Where in Jojo Rabbit, it focuses specifically on Jojo. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really take a whole a look at the Holocaust or a look at the Jewish people. It just says we're going to look at Jojo and how he changes when confronted with new information and new understandings. That's a really good point. Like kind of like you've got kind of the personal with Jojo Rabbit and kind of the systemic with Prince of Egypt. Yeah. Like enacting change on a small personal scale and enacting change on, you know, a big scale. And I don't, I don't know what I would say about that either. That's just is a thing that happens. <laughs> so these are both very good movies. I don't know. Do you have any way you're leaning yet? I'm kind of leaning towards Prince of Egypt. I kind of am too. Like, I don't know. I, at the same time, I don't want to be like... That guy? <laughs> yeah, like, you know, like, the, the people choosing, like, the one Sunday, mo- the one movie that our mom let us watch on Sundays. But, <laughs> <laughs> like, because it, oh, it's not on. about that. It's about that it's a holistically amazing film. It's animated beautifully. It's so grand on such a large scope. It's such a beautiful story that they did such amazing justice to. Yeah. And also, it's one of the only movies our mom ever let us watch in Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, we 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 got all the Veggie Tales. I honestly, I'm thinking that it's just scope. On it's I think just, so. it's I think so that makes sense. Grand and majestic, and but like still somehow so personal, and it's kind of incredible how they're able to toe the line between the two. Cool. Have we done it? Have we gotten through all of these? I think we did. Wow. Um, I, I don't I feel like we should wrap up. Um, <laughs> this feels kind of like after all of the nonsense that we've talked about, this being such a big deal, it's just gone. All of the build up. Prince of Egypt is the winner. Insert confetti sound. Woo. Woo. Um, so maybe, maybe now that we're done with this, we, you could, uh, tease some of the stuff that we have coming up. Ooh, sure. Good idea. Um, uh, let me pull up the word doc or the Google document. Okay, um, so the next one that we'll be recording is uh, going to be another guest episode. This one is going to be featuring our little sister, Emma. And I believe that the title that we've come up for that is The Best and Worst of Romance Media. Uh, So get ready for some fun discussion there. Excellent. We're going to be talking about books a little bit. I wanted to do kind of a guide to reading classic literature because we both really like classic literature. And uh, we're not into gatekeeping, so we wanted to bring you all in on that. <laughs> My number one tip is if you're reading a classic, uh, put it on audiobook because it's no, way easier yeah. to listen to it. So much easier. Oh my gosh. You can just breeze through the boring stuff. Yeah. Uh, we've got some more discussion about video games coming up, both uh, like childhood video games and also uh, artsy video games. So that'll be fun. Yeah. Um, We've got some kind of more meta talks. Like I've got one that's what makes a good adaptation, um, which I think will be a really fun discussion. Um, That one's not going to be until September. though. Maybe I shouldn't be teasing that far out. Well, that's not totally true. I've got some blanks in the schedule right now because like I went through Mm -hmm. and edited some of my concepts because I decided actually that they would be bad concepts. And so, (laughs) well, you know, that's part of the, that's part of the, you know, sometimes you got to throw the thing out and sometimes, it's yeah, exactly. It's it's part of the editing process. Brainstorming. That's what I was. Ta- that's what I was trying to say. It's part of the brainstorming. 
so yeah, get ready for some books, get ready for some video games, get ready probably for some more movies eventually. Um, get ready for a lot of good stuff coming up in the future. We'll hope you stick with us. Uh, well, thank you for listening to Screenwalkers. As always, you can find uh, show notes at our website, screenwalkerspod.com. Um, we still don't have uh, any social media because that seems like a job that I do not want to pile on top of the actual job that I already have. But, you know, maybe someday we'll get an Instagram. And thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a good night. Good night. Mm-hmm. Or good day. You know, good day. it doesn't Whenever have to be good night. Whenever you're listening to this. It's yeah, it's midnight for where I am, so.